it says this in the first four verses where it's that's where we're going to hang out this morning the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So we're talking about going towards opposition, which is not usually where we as Christians like to hang out. What we've found over recent days is the great retreat. Hear that lion's roar, and where do we typically want to go? Away from the lion, right? I heard just recently David Barton talking about the lion's roar, and I did not know this before, but male lions kill very few people and animals. The male lion is big and strong and has his big mane, and he's scary looking, and his growl is really terrifying. But you're actually quite safe in the presence of the male lion. It's the agile female lions that are the ones you need to really look out for. So when you hear the roar, we're not supposed to run from the roar because that will drive us right into the hands of the enemy. Instead, we're supposed to run to the roar. That's the place we want to be. But Christians today have trouble with opposition. So... The truth is, the truth of the scriptures, our, our presence is to be opposition to the world. So typically what we like to do is we like to always talk about love. We like to always talk about how we're supposed to be peace and joy. And we are supposed to be. And we are supposed to be love. However, our very presence is to be in opposition to the world that we live in. So Matthew 5, 13 through 14, Jesus said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What are the terms here he uses that are terms of opposition? Think about that for just a second. Salt and light so again that preserving power of salt how did they use to preserve their meat they would pack it in salt and they would eat it weeks and weeks later and they would not die they would not go sick because the salt preserved it the salt protected them the salt brought a difference into the world and light light makes a difference in all dark scenarios so as we talk about the things that are happening even in our nation, even in our town, we need to remember that we are called to be both the salt and the light. If we want to see real change, real effective change, we need to actually live like we are the opposition because that's exactly what Christ calls us to. So we've been taught that Christianity is to be lived out as passivity. So one of the verses that everyone always turns to and, and says when we're having conversations about this, what did Jesus say? He said, someone strikes you on the cheek, do what? Turn the other cheek. So we're supposed to live out this passive life, and that is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying there 
as proven not only in the context of that verse, but also in other verses. But let's not go there this morning. Let's instead look at the Jesus that a lot of people will point us to. So often when people are attacking our faith and they're attacking Christianity, they do not point out the Jesus that allowed someone to slap his other cheek, right? What do they, what do they pull out of the works? The Jesus that throws over the tables in the temple. When Christ turned over those tables, he did what? He was confronting corruption. So people will say, oh, well, that's just a temper tantrum. Jesus was just mad because what he wanted to have happen in the temple wasn't happening. No, they had turned the temple, which was a place for prayer, into a place to exchange money and to buy goods. They had turned it into something it was never designed to be, and Jesus confronted that head on. So the question we all need to ask ourselves this morning is, Jesus fought in that way, where do we, where do we fight? We started a, uh, a job years ago now, and when I got to the building, they wanted to show me around. So the guy that was showing me around took me and showed me where I would be seated to do my job while I was in the office, showed me the truck I'd be driving, and then took me out to the bathroom. When he took me out to the bathroom, he showed me the sink, similar to the one that you see right here. And he did tell me that every once in a while that bucket's going to get full. And what we need you to do is if you happen to be the guy that comes in the bathroom and the bucket is overflowing, take that thing out and dump it into the shower floor so that thing can drain. That's interesting. Having a background in plumbing, I've never seen anyone do anything like this before in my life. And to make matters worse, the situation that you see in front of you is actually quite simple. They have a small can just to catch the water that's dripping from this trap. However, these guys had a five-gallon bucket underneath this thing. So not only do you have to have this thing underneath this catching the water, you don't know when it gets too full because the trap is down in the bucket. So in taking the bucket out from underneath the trap, what are you doing? Spilling water, right? So their way to fight this is actually just causing a mess anyway. There's still a little bit of water that's getting on the floor no matter what. So not wanting to be the guy that brings all kinds of ruffled feathers, I let it go for a couple of days before I could no longer stand the idea of putting my fingers in that water, so I took the slip nut. For anyone that's not a plumber, this guy right here that was cracked off and threw that away, purchased a new one for 80 cents, and the sink worked well until I didn't work in that location anymore. So the problem with we as Christians today is we spend an awful lot of time wasting energy. And I literally mean that. We're wasting energy. Most Christians couldn't point to the reason Christ overturned the tables. Someone confronts us and says, well, Jesus was angry and he, he overthrew the tables. And most people would say, it was a righteous thing he was doing, but we can't really put our finger down on why he would do such a thing. Because we see Jesus as this blonde-haired, tanned beach dude with his chest hanging out of his, his toga or the pictures that we see all over the place of the perfect combed hair and beard. He lived in the Middle East in the first century, not the way he looked. But this is what we see, and we see Jesus always smiling. How many times throughout the Gospels do we read of Jesus smiling? 
many times throughout the Gospels do we read of him laughing at? This is the impression that we've given, that Jesus was just a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, walking around, getting hit on the cheek, turning the other one toward people, and that's not who Christ was. We went through uh, two weeks ago how Christ cursed the olive tree and what exactly that means. It's important that we know what these things mean. Christ overturned the temple. Most of us cannot put our finger down on the reason that he did it. So when we are in these places where we face this opposition, we just don't know how to face it. How do we do it? Well, there's a good reason for this. And I hope that all of us feel a little bit of the condemnation of this, which will better prepare us to receive the word this morning. The first national survey of the worldview of Americans conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University shows that although 7 out of 10 often consider themselves to be Christian, only 6% possess a biblical worldview. 6%, that's it. So, was this study done back in like 95? No, this study was done in May of last year. So yeah, well, people were, people were sad then because we were locked down and that was when we were in the heat of the pandemic. Not so. We've seen a steady decline since they started doing research on this in the mid-60s of Christians in America. Still, we have the same number of people, even though, yes, we should be fearful because every day they're saying there are more and more nuns and that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. We should be fearful there are more and more people that are not accepting any faith at all and are rejecting the Christian faith. But numbers have shown steadily that 7 out of 10 people you walk into out on the street will say that they are Christians. But out of all the people that profess to be Christians, 6% of them So that's not six out of the ten. That's not even one of them possess a biblical worldview. So how do we begin to correct it? Well, first, just a moment on on that idea of the biblical worldview. So every single person living, breathing, dying has one of two worldviews. Not one of three. Not one of four. There are not seven. Okay, there are only two. You either take the Bible at face value and that is what you view the world through or you reject that and you view the world through something else. So yes, there are extremes here. There are just two extremes. Either the Bible is our guide to life, to living, to loving, or it's not. Those are the only two choices. And according to Scripture, uh, this is where we need to be. According to the research, this is where we are not as a people, as a group of believers. And this should really concern us all. So it means, yes, questions like, should there be capital punishment? This is addressed in the pages of Scripture. Should people be able to protect their family with a weapon? This is in the Scripture. This is not a matter of you interpret it your way, I interpret it my way. This is in the Bible. What should be done with people that abuse children? That's here. That's here. What are the rules of of just war? It's in the Bible. How is it that someone can be convicted of a crime and punished by the government? Those rules are also in the Bible. Two to three independent lines of witness. Where is that? Well, it's actually found in Leviticus, that book that we don't turn to because we don't read about all the gross things. 
reptiles, all that stuff. Touching a dead body. So every single question that we have about life actually is addressed in the Bible. It is addressed here. See how, well, what about the idea of gender? That's addressed in the Bible. That's here. Everything is here. Every single thing that is happening in today's culture is addressed here. And the problem we have as Christians, not knowing how to address it, is we don't spend enough time simply reading. That's it. You can read one verse a day and just absorb one verse a day and you will be ahead of the 6% of Americans. You will have a stronger worldview because of that, a stronger biblical worldview. Most people that have struggles with what to choose and how to converse in certain conversations, the reason they have this is because they're listening to the world and not to the word. They're listening to all that nonsense out there and they're not listening to what God has to say. The whole idea of representative government, guess where that comes from? The Bible. Yes, the founders came up with that idea from reading the Bible. It's all here. We have the entire guidebook for how to live life, yet we don't access it enough. So how do we begin to correct this issue? Now, I've demonstrated so far from statistics, and you can go off on a rabbit trail and you can find so many studies that will present the same exact information to us. We'll come up with the same conclusion. This is objective. So these are not studies asking people, how do you feel about this? They're saying, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? I flip on the news. Check mark. They're asking all these questions. It's objective. Remember, we're talking about objective and subjective. We're talking about the thermostat in the room. You walk in and say, it's cold in here, and you put on your coat. I walk in and say, it's hot in here. I take my coat off. Neither one of us are wrong. Amen? However, when we both go to the thermostat and we read the thermometer there, we can both see the objective truth that it's 72 degrees in here. No matter how you or I feel about 72 degrees, the fact is it's 72 degrees. We have an objective standard in front of us. This is what we turn to. This is what we look at. So how do we begin to correct this mess that we're in? Because it is a mess. Third John gives us the plan. The clear and simple plan for how to face and even walk towards opposition. The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Stop right there. When John is saying your truth, he is not talking about the same truth that's been spoken of by leaders in the past five years. Your truth and my truth. Your truth may be that this bill in my pocket is worth one dollar but my truth is that it's worth a hundred dollars not the way it works it's not what's being said here what's being said here is the truth that they have grabbed a hold of look at how he goes on as indeed you are walking in the truth this truth that they're walking in has become their truth it is their identity i have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth it literally starts with what you and I do about truth. You will see if you count through the letter of 3 John about seven times, we see truth either spoken of or talked about. That which is true or the truth being true. 
spoken of there at least seven times. It's very, very clear. John has a serious concern for what you and I do with the truth. This is where we need to start, even this morning. Because I just want to tell everyone, I know that we already all know this, but by way of reminder, there are going to be things that come to every single one of us in 2021. We will be challenged on what we believe. There are attacks that are being made against the church that we have no idea about, but we will see this year. Crazy things about what should be said from a pulpit, a place that's always been free and always been uh, to the accountability of the people, always been to the accountability of the congregation. There are attacks that are going to be made about what things can be said and what things cannot be said from this book. It's coming. This is not a, well, it might happen. This is coming. These things are already going on. There are going to be attacks brought against you and your faith. Because you say you're a Christian, people are going to say, oh, well, then you identify with, or oh, you believe this. We need to know where we stand. And it literally starts with what you and I do about the truth. So as I said before, truth is mentioned seven times in this small letter, which is really interesting. Because if you say something to someone seven times, evidently you're trying to get their attention. The question that we need to deal with is, what do we do about the truth? Psalm 86.11 says this. It's so beautiful. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Not walk in my truth. Not walk in the way I feel about these things. Walk in your truth. Whose truth? God's truth. Unite my heart to, excuse me, untie my heart to fear your name. Beautiful. Unite my heart to fear your name. So how do we walk in truth? This is the most important thing we can all take away from here this morning. How do we do it? How do we walk in truth? When we look at the Bible, we consider, what do we do with this? Because I, Jason Berg, have stood here this morning and said a whole bunch of stuff. Talked about drippy sinks. Talked about gender. Talked about national history. Talked about how the Bible gives us all kinds of of truth and it gives us the truth and that we are supposed to live according to this. So what do we do with all these things that have been said so far? Well, we need to burn and bury the distinction between sacred sacred and secular. So somehow, somewhere in the span of time, particularly in the last 50 years, there has been a serious stomping on anything religious. I say that across the board and it's true. There are some religions that are favored over others. Christianity is definitely being wiped out. Slowly, but carefully, they're trying to remove God from everything. There are people that say that the Constitution is a secular document. That is the biggest bunch of baloney any of us will ever hear. The least religious founder is more religious than you and I. The least religious of the founders were more faithful than you and I with our public worship, with our public attendance, with the way we go about life. They would have been seen as crazy right-wing religious people compared to the way you and I look at the scriptures. So somehow, somewhere, and we've allowed this as the church, we've allowed there to become a distinction between sacred and secular, between what stuff is God's and what stuff isn't. Between what stuff we can say in church and what stuff we can say outside of church. Between what things we talk about and think about in church and what things we talk about and think about out in the world. And we need to burn it and bury it because it does not exist. 
It doesn't exist. Christ never gives us one reason to draw a line between that which is sacred and that which is secular, which is amazing. Find it. Show me the verse. Where he says, you as my follower on Monday are going to have to do these things, but Sunday morning, make sure you show up. Make sure you bring your Bible, dust that thing off. It doesn't exist. Christ doesn't go and approach people and say, well, I know that one day a week things are going to be different for you than the rest of the week. That's not the way it works. The expectation of these scriptures is that they will apply to every area of life, every moment of life. Everyone remember a few weeks ago we talked about how to have success in this life. Really important verse to commit to memory Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. All means all, that's all all means. So it's not all the things you and I like, not all the things we can remember, it's all the things that are written in it. For then and only then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Remember Psalm 1, 1 and 2 that we just read Three weeks ago, now blessed is man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates when? Day and night. Day and night. There's no exception clause. None. It does not exist. There's not a, but in this situation, you will have to. There's not a, but in this situation, you may have to choose. In this situation here, this is going to be a little particular to you and your time period. You may have to. It it doesn't exist. We have no excuse as believers not to think on a situation biblically. So when we are standing in the break room and we're talking to someone or we are out uh, speaking to some friends or some family, we have no excuse when we have a conversation with them not to think about that conversation biblically. It has to happen this way. This is the expectation of the scriptures. It has to be this way. Thinking on and responding to situations biblically, this is what it means to walk in the truth what it says in third john these verses once more we're look at verse three for i rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth i have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in where the truth truth i have no greater joy to face opposition head on because that's what we want to do We must have a proper knowledge of and application of the truth. So we usually choose one of two ways to do this. We either choose all the application or we choose all the knowledge. We choose to be a biblical scholar in every conversation or we choose to be a Pharisee in every conversation. We need to have both a proper knowledge of and application of the truth. Where does this fit into my life? And the truth is something that we are seeing just deteriorate in front of our very eyes. The absolute truth is that there are no absolute truths. I was able to speak to Frank Turek this past spring for Master's Crib. 
He was talking to me about a young man he was speaking to on campus, and that man stood up and said, there is no such thing as truth. And Frank answered him perfectly, is what you just said true? I had to stop and think about that for a second. Well, yeah. So is it absolutely true? Well, yes. Well, how can it be if there are no absolute truths? This is the world that we live in now. There are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths. Frederick Nietzsche. No eternal facts. There are no absolute truths. It's amazing. The one thing that we say we want to stand and live for is the one thing that they want to take away from us. The fact that there is an objective truth that you and I are expected to live by. It's interesting that if you think about this for a second, if you were to walk into a room and you were to see a person with their hands around their throat and they're gagging, the truth of that situation is they're choking, right? Their face is turning blue. Their eyes are coming out of their head. There's no way they're pretending here. The absolute truth of that situation is they're choking. And you need to do something about that. We have objective truth in front of us. Hands around throat, eyes popping out of head, blue face. This person needs your help. That's objective. Now, two people walk in the room. They come upon this situation. And the one guy says, no, hold on a minute here. Let's, let's think about this for a second. Maybe this means something different. To me, what if he's dancing? That's the stupidest thing. Can I get an amen? The stupidest thing I said all morning, amen? That's dumb. If you walk into a room and you see a body, a corpse lying on the ground, there are objective ways we can go and verify that, right? First thing you go and check for breathing. Second thing you go and check for a pulse. If neither of these things are there, it is objective that what? The person's dead. Okay, they're not going to get up and make you a cup of coffee. They are gone. This is objective truth. Yet now in the world we live in, we have objectivity thrown away and replaced with subjectivity. Well, it depends on how you feel about it. We will never, I say never, we all said never before. I highly doubt a situation is going to come up where we walk into a room and there's a dead person laying there on the floor and someone is going to try to pretend that they're living. It's ridiculous. We walk into a room and someone's choking and we're going to try to pretend like they're not choking. That's not objective. That's how we feel about it. This idea has penetrated modern thought for years. For years. Think about it just for a second. It's in our schools. Yes, they are telling little boys and girls now that they may not be little boys and girls. It's in our colleges. Trying to tell people in college when life begins and when life ends, which is very evident to most people. It's in our newspapers. The newspapers are so slanted, I don't know how we can ever trust any news ever for any purpose ever, no matter what side anyone's on, because they're all lying to us. But there it is. There is no truth. One person says this is true. Another person says this is true. It's not news. It's opinion. The idea that pervades is that there is no truth. The idea that penetrates all over the place is that there absolutely is no truth. There's nothing you can lean on. There's nothing you can reach out and grab a hold of. There is no truth. None. Francis Schaeffer said, in passing, we should note this curious mark of our own age. 
The only absolute allowed is the absolute <laughs> that there is no absolute. Insist on this. That there is no absolute truth. At the same time they're saying, I insist there is no absolute truth, they are insisting an absolute. Which means their whole argument comes undone on their own heads. It's crazy. It's insane. And that's not the world that any one of us want to live in. So I ask you this morning, if you're choking and you're in the kitchen and someone walks in, do you want them to see how they feel about the situation? you want them to do something about it? you want them to work, right? Get this food out of me! Save my life! Do something! you want people to sit there and think about this? There's absolute truth. Absolutely. God says that he created all things. He created all things good. And that we messed it up. And that he is about restoring all things. Yet the idea that we have in front of us this morning and will continue to have pressed down our throats is that there is no truth. And that if you read the Bible, you're a bigot, you're a liar, you're a religious zealot, uh, you're some sort of crazy person. These ideas have swept through every pew and pulpit in America and one of two things have happened. They've either been accepted or rejected. Any little, any little bit. And this is the thing that is so sad about where we live you can drink just a tiny little bit of poison and it's going to kill you no matter how long it takes. The prophet, Muhammad, he stole a young Jewish girl as he was in the habit of doing and he brought her to his house to be his slave. Now, mind you, this is the man, yes, that crafted it and, uh, and jotted down the Quran the first version of it. And this man brought in this Jewish slave and said, prepare a meal for myself and my friends. So what do you think he wanted? Well, his favorite food was the shoulder of pig, although that is not what they're supposed to be eating. Apparently, it depends on what level in the religion you are. So he was allowed to eat pig, and his friends were too, just no one else was. So at any rate... This woman goes in and she starts preparing this shoulder of pig and she puts some poison in the very shoulder, brings it out and serves it before he and his friends. And he starts digging in and so do his friends. And within a few moments, two of the friends bow down dead. And he stops eating. And he extends his finger to this young Jewish girl and says, take her and execute her. And she says, but my Lord... Allah spoke to me and said that if I poisoned the meat, you being the only true prophet of Allah would be able to tell and would not die. Well, what do you do then? Now she just professed everything you said that's true to be true. So what did he do? He spared her life, but he suffered for the last years of his life because the poison was still there. And he eventually died with this terrible stomach illness and he was actually having a lot of difficulty to read the accounts, eating for a long time. This is something that plagued him. It only takes a little bit of poison into your system and you have done damage. Just a tiny little bit of this stuff that we allow in our church, in our pews, in our Bibles. Yes, they have poisoned 
Some of the versions of the Bible with this craziness, they're not actual translations. They're just ones that people have brought in and said, hey, read this. They have poisoned all these things and it's creeping in. So either we've ingested this stuff or we've rejected this stuff. But it's everywhere. And what you and I do with truth, with the truth, with the truth of God's word, this is so vital. And I want to be honest just with everyone for just a moment. Christ may come back tomorrow. He may come back in a hundred years. He may come back in a thousand years. Guess who knows? Not you and not me. And not the guy that sits there with a calculator saying, oh, the signs have been shown to us. It's going to be on the third day of July. That guy's a liar. Don't believe him. Be honest. That guy's a liar. Don't believe him. We don't know when he's going to come back. But we do know that every single generation throughout the history of generations has been responsible for their generation and the one to come. So what you and I do today is important, not just for our children, but for our grandchildren. What you and I do today with the gospel of Jesus Christ is vital for the kingdom of God for a generation. And what you and I do with this is so very vital. We need to really think about these full implications because what does God call us to do with this truth? He calls us to do what? To live by it. To live by it.